0: It's that excruciating time of day when I have to take a piss again. I let my right leg slide off the bed, my toes just grazing the floor. Bastet runs over and rubs her face against my ankle. I peel my left hip off the bed, slowly pivoting it until my left leg can't help but follow and it drapes over the edge of the mattress and I'm lying on my side. With great effort, I push myself upright and I sit there, my feet dangling, swaying slightly with my pulse. I imagine them as rocks and their added density coaxes my body downward until my feet are on the floor and I can press myself forward away from the bed. I shuffle toward the bathroom, tripping over Bestet. I sit on the toilet for 12 minutes after I'm finished, my legs fall asleep. I push myself up and stand with my underwear around my knees until the blood rushes back through my legs and I flush and I pull my underwear back up without bothering to wipe. I go over to the kitchen, an empty baking dish with the remnants of the blintzes Dorothy brought to me two days in sits on the stove. The farmer's cheese congealing around the edges, little gray bits of mold spotting the landscape. I stand in the kitchen for eight minutes. I watch the time pass on the microwave clock. I have 11 more hours left of my day. I fill a glass with water, and I bring it back to my room, and I sit on the edge of my bed, and I take a sip bring it down to my lap, take another sip, and place it on the nightstand. I let myself fall back, lying horizontally across the bed, looking up at the ceiling. My skin is sticky. When I lift my arm, crumbs from the bed stick to it. It's hot, and I'd like for the fan to be on but it's over there. I used to lie like this on a different bed with the same ceiling, waiting impatiently for my mother and grandmother to take me to the park. I'd listen to them talking with my grandfather in the living room, figuring they had forgotten about me and the promises they'd made to me. But just as the pit in my stomach would harden, my mom would come swirling into the room with a giant bag full of picnic supplies and toys over her shoulder and tell me we were leaving. She couldn't yell at me for being in bed with my shoes on. They were hanging off the edge. Did she see me right now? Was she always watching like they tell you as if it were a comfort? Is she watching while I stand naked in front of a mirror, pulling back different sections of fat so I can see what I might look like if I ever had the willpower to stop eating cookies and spaghetti? Is she watching when I lay a paper towel all over a pile of Bastet's vomit instead of cleaning it up right away? Is she watching when I step on little kids' heels and pretend it was an accident to their mother, but really I was just feeling impatient and bitter? Is she watching while I'm wiping cum off my face and while I'm masturbating to violent porn and while I'm taking a shit and while I'm puking up 10 whiskey gingers? Is she watching when I ring up my organic fruit as regular fruit in the self-checkout lane at the grocery store? Is she watching when I avert my eyes when I see a man rubbing himself against a woman on a crowded train? My grandmother smelled like Chanel number five. The bottle, I presume, is still sitting on her dresser in her room. I swear I can smell it sometimes. (sighs) I should be getting a check soon. I think I may try incorporating some athleisure into my wardrobe, even though I hate exercising. I should exercise. They say exercise releases endorphins. That's what they always tell you. Whenever I'm down, I just go for a walk. Not only is this useless advice, but it's advice I don't even hear as advice. I hear it as you trying to tell me that I'm fat. Don't try and use my depression as an opportunity to bring up that I could lose a few pounds. I see exactly what you're doing. I think I have new upstairs neighbors. Their patterns are different. That, or maybe one of them is having an affair. At one point, over half of all the people I'd ever slept with had been cheating on their girlfriends. No wives, at least, that I know of. My legs are falling asleep again. I pull them up on the bed, roll over, and curl into a ball. I knew I wanted to name a cat Bastet ever since my dad would bring me to the Egyptian wing of the Met when I was a little kid. Back then, my wildest fantasy was hiding somewhere until after the museum closed, breaking the glass cases and playing with all those little figurines stolen from ancient graves. My dad could do the Sunday Times crossword in pen. Three years ago, I was able to finish one of their crosswords except for one single square. I didn't know enough about Latin or operas. I have an itch on the back of my knee. There's been a pair of tights balled up between the hamper and the closet wall since December. I look at them every time I put something in the hamper. I see them and I think, why not just bend a little deeper and pick up the tights? but I don't. I figure sometime next fall, I'll need a pair of tights to wear again, and that's when I'll pick them up. I could go pick them up right now, now that I'm really thinking about it, but. I'm unsure if it's a good or bad thing that my leg hair is now so long I can more easily feel the tiny spider crawling up my calf. I squash the spider. Sometimes I am overcome with terror thinking of all the bugs living in the walls. I have 10 more hours left of my day. smell myself, I take a shower. As I watch the dirty water swirl about my feet, I think of Gail Cohen. There was another person on the list, a man named Julius Kramer, who was even older than she was, and I'm fearing he too has died since I started looking into all this. Was he also alone? I had found nothing on him but a membership in the local pigeon racing club. It seemed like a lonely man's game i had long wondered about the disappearing pigeon coops of the city. You could pick out the domesticated flocks, sweeping gracefully in large circles around the sky. I always thought of the man sitting on a milk crate on his roof, watching them, waiting for them to come back home. If I were to see Julius Kramer, I wouldn't want to lie anymore. I might not be ready to actively tell the truth, but I wouldn't want to trick him either. I wouldn't be a documentary filmmaker hoping to connect with him for a short I'm working on about the lost art of pigeon racing, like I was when I got his contact information from the League. I would just be a person, wanting to talk to another person, and if he was unwilling to do that, suspicious of it even, then so be it. I turn the water off and I stand in the shower until I start shivering. There's no real reason to do so except that I'm procrastinating combing my hair but eventually I step out, wrap myself in a towel, and pull at my hair, wincing with perverse delight every time I rip a tangle from my head instead of teasing my way through it. By the time I'm done, there are wet clumps of hair and dozens of errant strands surrounding my feet. I'll pick them up in the morning when they're dry and easier to collect. At least, that's what I tell myself. I get dressed go back to my room, and write Julius Kramer an email. Hello, it says. I know this email is a little crazy, but it's my understanding that you keep pigeons. I couldn't explain why, but I've always been fascinated with the idea of keeping pigeons in the city. Would you be so kind as to show me your pigeons one day? It just seems like a lovely way to spend a late summer afternoon. Here's a link to my website, so I'm not as much of a complete stranger. I hope to hear from you. Thank you, Anna. As soon as I send it, I realize how insane I sound and wish I could take it all back. I spend the next day enveloped in a blistering anxiety, which compels me to leave the house at last and go on a meandering three-mile walk to try and shake off the energy that's making me feel like my skin can no longer contain my insides. The walk helps, and it fades. Then. Three days later, Julius Kramer checks his email. Anna, he says, I must admit this is a strange request, but I'd be happy to honor it. The birds love guests. to be in Brownsville, East New York, and Bushwick, but Julius lives in Inwood. I let the train carry me up the length of Manhattan and take the long way to his building through the park, marveling at the Craigs, the Hudson, pitying the suckers who can only comprehend New York as a cluster of skyscrapers. Being at the top of the island, the top of the A-line, the top of the subway map, has me feeling like I'm on a mountain. It feels like I have conquered something to be up here. Julius warned me that his intercom is broken, so when I arrive at his door I call the number he gave me. I hear a house phone ringing five floors above me, and I realize it's been years since I've heard that sound. It's jarring to notice facets of life as you thought you knew it are obsolete, considered history, like the first time I saw an exhibition about 9-11 in a museum. Or when I had a sudden overwhelming heartache over the fact that teenagers don't know the particular giddy thrill of making a mix for their crush. Sweating over the order of the tracks, wondering if they'll pick up on the hidden messages in the lyrics of the songs you chose, crafting the perfect title off an inside joke, decorating the CD, handing it to them physically in a jewel case, you gave them the blue one because you know it's their favorite color. What? Do they just text them a playlist to arrange on their own Spotify now? It just doesn't cut it. But I shake my head about all that. It's never a good sign when I start getting nostalgic. Julius picks up the phone. Hello? Hi, it's Anna. Who? It's Anna! Who's Anna? I... I'm here to see your pigeons. Is this still a good time?
1: Oh, right, right. Hold on, I'll let you in.
0: Julius hangs up without any pleasantries, and a full minute later, he finally buzzes me in. I take the elevator up to his floor, look down the hall, and see a door ajar. I walk up to it and peek in. I hear someone knocking around in the kitchen. Hello? I wait a few moments, but when Julius neither answers nor appears, I take a chance and step inside. The apartment is filled with books and tchotchkes of the kind the owner can casually describe as something I picked up in a market in Guatemala. I smell coffee brewing and follow it to the kitchen where thankfully Julius, or, I guess, the old man I presume to be Julius, is indeed standing, pouring coffee into two mismatched mugs. When he doesn't start and come at me with a knife for intruding, I feel confident I'm in the right place. He doesn't look up at me when I enter the room but gestures toward the end of the counter where a carton of milk, a carton of half-and-half, and a sugar dish are clustered together.
1: I don't know how you take it.
0: He pushes a mug down the counter toward me and finally looks up to meet my eyes. He wipes his hand on his pant leg before extending it to me. I take it and we shake once, firmly. Hello. Hello. Thank you so much for having me, and for the coffee. We each tend to our mugs.
1: I don't get too many visitors. thought it would be nice. And you don't seem like the type that's going to rob me blind, so uh, don't go proving me wrong, okay?
0: Okay. I swear I'm just interested in the birds. He shakes his head as he stirs his coffee.
1: You don't see too much of that, especially not in young people. Surprisingly not in women at all that often, either. So especially not in young women. I really don't know why that is.
0: Yeah, you know, now that you say it, I can't think of too many women I know who are into birds.
1: You all like your dogs. Not having babies anymore, just dogs. I have a cat. Ah, yes, and of course the cats. I don't know how pigeons got their reputation, this whole rats with wings thing. Have you ever really looked
0: at a pigeon? Their feathers are iridescent. Is that why you keep them? You find them beautiful?
1: I've been keeping them since I was a boy, since I came over here. I'm not sure I remember why. Back then, everybody in the neighborhood was doing it, the Jews, the Italians, the Puerto Ricans. This was when I was over in the Bronx. It was a distraction, maybe. There are different groups that need a distraction now. I don't know. We were all new to the country. We didn't know the language enough. It was something we could just do without too much trouble, nail together a couple of pieces of wood you found on the street, and boom, you have a pigeon coop. Let's sit with these for a bit in the living room, if you don't mind. I thought we'd bring them up there at first, but don't want you to get a feather in your coffee.
0: I follow him back into the living room and sink into the couch across the marble-topped coffee table from the armchair Julius has eased himself into. I balance my mug on my knee, and we stare at each other through the steam. So, who are you? I'm good, thanks.
1: No, I said, who are you?
0: Oh, well... I don't know. I guess I'm still trying to figure that out.
1: Your generation seems to be given a lot of more time for that.
0: I braced myself for stories about the war, whichever war was his, and his factory job and his bustling family thriving under the home he'd purchased in cash by the time he was 23. A life that he did not live glamorously, but looked back on with pride thanks to his hard and honest work in a noble, unfrivolous field. I armed myself with my own stories of balancing two part-time jobs, freelance work, and an unpaid internship while still not being able to pay all my bills, racking up credit card debt on top of my student loans for the school where tuition for one year was three times more than his annual salary at the time, and which dumped me out into the real world right as it collapsed, and where I found that the industries I'd prepared my entire life to work in now no longer existed. But, instead... He took a forceful slurp of his coffee, even though I knew it was way too hot, as if that made the point of whatever internal monologue he had running in his own head. I look around the room and my eyes land on a somber, expressionist painting of a woman on a bare canvas hanging on the wall. I like that painting.
1: Thank you. It's of my wife. Did you paint it? I did.
0: So you're an artist?
1: Oh, you could say that.
0: Is your wife still alive? I wince at the crassness of the question as it's coming out of my mouth. Julius looks down and takes another forceful sip of his coffee. No. I tepidly test my coffee. It immediately burns my tongue. Julius sighs and seems to begrudgingly accept he's having a conversation.
1: No. She died twenty years ago, far too young for the life she always had in her. I knew her since she was ten years old. We grew up together in Budapest, where I'm from. I left when I was 15, came here with my older sister and her husband. A year or two later, she came over with her parents when she was 16. The rest, as they say...
0: That's incredible. The photo of Debbie and Sam Needleman with young Gail Cohen flashes in my mind, and suddenly I feel like an intruder. Do you have any grandchildren? I wonder if, in some way, Julius considers Ira and Lydia his grandchildren.
1: I have two children, three grandchildren but they all ended up on the west coast somehow. I don't see or hear from them very often. No, no, not much family to speak of, really.
0: I knew, I knew it was impossible, and yet somehow the remark felt pointed. I bring the mug to my lips and pretend to drink just to not have to look at him. We sit for a few moments in silence, looking around the room, trying to find something else to talk about. Finally, he takes one more loud slurp of his coffee and sets it down hard on the table.
1: So, you want to see the birds?
0: I nod. Julius pushes himself up out of the chair with great effort and goes to put on his shoes. Taking his lead, I leave my still-full coffee mug on the table and follow him out the door. We go down the hall, and he opens a door with a big handwritten sign on it that proclaims, ''Do not enter.'' It reveals a steep, narrow, dark staircase— And when Julius takes the first step, the creaking ricochets around the walls and up into the high ceiling.
1: You'll have to forgive me. We're going to take these slow. You know, there's the weather, there's the hawks. But most of all, what I fear for my birds is that one day I'm going to reach these stairs and think, fuck it, I simply can't climb these anymore.
0: I don't mind. I don't want to reveal that I'm grateful for the slow pace. I grip the handrail hard. It feels like any minute my feet are going to sink through the wood and dangle from the ceiling of some unsuspecting tenant's apartment. Eventually, we step out of the door at the top of the stairs and onto the roof, a gust of crisp air blowing in our faces. Julius exhales deeply. I can hear the chorus of birds already from the ramshackle coop in the far corner of the roof. There's a low-level tittering that sounds like gossip, and as we approach... More and more birds chime in, and their pitch rises.
1: I'm coming, I'm coming.
0: Julius stops at a trunk outside the coop, opens it, and pulls out a bucket full of feed. Then he opens the door, gesturing for me to follow quickly behind him. I slip inside, right on his heels, and he closes the door behind me. The walls are lined with three shelves outfitted to be little nests, and they're filled with about thirty pigeons who all turn their heads in unison towards us. Julius holds out the bucket to me.
1: Want to grab a handful? You'll eat right out of your hand if you want them to.
0: I nod and sink my hands into the seed, pulling up a pile that I hold in both hands. I pause to glance nervously around at the birds. Don't be shy. I look to my right and see a white pigeon looking at me inquisitively. I step closer and hold out my hands. It tilts its head at me, then steps forward and dips down, plucking a few seeds. A jet black one with a shock of purple feathers at the nape of its neck has his curiosity piqued and comes to join the party. Suddenly, there's a rush of wings and a slate gray bird lands on my forearm, sidling its way down until you can reach the seed, too. They like you. I look back at Julius, who's scattering seed on the floor, but has a dark gray and green bird on one shoulder and one that resembles cookies and cream ice cream on the other. They're beautiful. I always thought pigeons were just gray.
1: Because you think of them as rats. Rats with wings, that's what they always say. It's a damn shame, but they're a beautiful bird, truly, and such variety.
0: He sets the bucket down and walks over to pick up a black one with white wings and a tuft on its head. He cradles the body with both hands, and I swear the bird snuggles in like a cat to a lap.
1: I started out collecting this type, breeding and collecting them. I thought they looked like something out of a comic book, but one of the guys down the block, this Dominican kid, he kept pigeons too and our birds kept mixing up with each other. We'd let them out to fly at the same time and when they'd return I'd realize I had some of his birds and he had some of mine. We'd walk him down the block. But I realized he had such beautiful birds, why was I being so boring? So we started trading. Sometimes yeah, we started stealing, trying to lure the birds with nicer seed, nicer coops. There's always that balance of camaraderie and competition. His family moved when I was maybe 18, but I never went back to just one type of bird after that.
0: Do they have names?
1: Carly, I can't remember your name. You expect me to memorize 32 birds' names?
0: My name is Anna. He nods and he points to the gray and white speckled bird with a crown of purple and green that's about to hop into my hands to get the last of the seed.
1: That one's named Anna.
0: I point to a pale gray one by his foot. That one's named Dorothy. He points up into a corner at a scruffy brown and white bird that's yet to come eat.
1: That ugly, grumpy bastard up there is called Julius, that ought to be easy to remember.
0: He reaches out to Julius the bird and he carefully climbs onto a finger and lets him bring him down.
1: He's real antisocial, which is rare for a pigeon. I think he narrowly avoided a run-in with the crow. Never quite got over it, poor guy. I think they're real sensitive creatures. They're monogamous, they stick to their friends, they stay close to where they're born. If they're taken somewhere else, they always fly home. They don't even migrate, they just want the coffer to home. Or maybe they just don't know any better.
0: I go over to the bucket, pick up another handful of seed, and move to another wall. The birds seem to understand me to be one of them now, and soon I have a line of them on my arm, one on my shoulder, one resting on my foot waiting for some seeds to spill. I recall the instinctive shielding of my face every time a burst of pigeons rode up from the sidewalks around me as I walk through a flock and feel retrospectively silly. Their cooing sounds to me like Bastet's purrs now. I push the seed all into one hand so I can carefully, slowly pet one on the head. It tilts its head back and forth, checking me out like a curious puppy. I imagine myself as an old woman, tottering down the sidewalk with my cane, Draped in a fur at the end of August, my arms full of bangles jangling as I scatter stale bread pieces at my feet by the park. A hundred pigeons alight around me for their feast. Some rest on my head, some on my shoulders as I keep walking to toss my next pile, and a mother and her child smile at me as they pass because they know me as the woman who feeds the birds in their neighborhood. Or maybe the homeless woman by my apartment is more accurate. The one who howls so accurately at night that for weeks I thought someone nearby had dog fights in their backyard. The one who sits on the street with her legs spread while wearing a tattered dress, the jet-black soles of her feet exposed, her gray hair sticking out in eight different directions. Who throws her bread so violently out onto the sidewalk that it sometimes pelts passing kids in the head instead, which makes her cackle so hard she almost falls backwards, and sometimes she does. Even the pigeons seem a little scared of her. Or maybe, one day I'll be strolling along in my caftan and scarves, and two dozen birds will lift me up by my sleeves and carry me away up into the sky, and that's how I'll know it's my time to go. Somewhere in my mind, I hear the old cassette tape that used to sing me to sleep. Tuppence, 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 the bag.
1: So, do you want to see them fly?
0: I jump a little at his voice. I turn and see the pigeons, for the most part, have stopped eating, and several of them are standing tall and flapping their wings as if stretching before the big game. I do. He nods toward the door and I follow him out. He keeps the door slightly ajar and rounds the side of the coop to grab a long stick with a raggedy black flag tied to the end of it. Then he throws the door wide open and waves the flag back and forth up towards the sky. The birds burst through, pouring out of the door in a cacophony of feathers, wings, coos. I step back, gasping at the rush of it all, and crane my head back to watch them rise, rise, rise. I feel my heart in my throat. I'd imagined them circling right around our heads, maybe doing a few laps around the building, but they were climbing up into the sky, zooming far out over the river, zipping down the avenues. Within seconds, I could only point to six that could be his, small little dots in the distance. I looked at Julius, who's looking up into the sky, squinting against the sun, a small smile on his face. And they're all going to come back, right?
1: There's always a chance some of them might not. Sometimes I think I've lost one, but then a couple of days later, I'll come up here and see him sitting on the roof, waiting to be let into the coop. You just have to have faith they'll find their way home safe.
0: He shields his eyes with his hand to scan the sky, and I follow his lead. We stand there side by side, watching the birds fly in silence, the breeze blowing through our hair. The sounds of the city streets fade away, and all that's left is the warmth of the sun in our faces. 15, maybe 20 minutes pass this way. Then Julius drops his head and rubs his eyes. Wow. And then he raises the flag, slowly weaving it in a figure eight methodically dipping and curving like some ancient dance mere minutes ago i would have never imagined julius could be so graceful i think perhaps he's passing the time out of boredom fighting the resistance of the winds like waving your hand out of the window of a car on the highway but after a few minutes a bird comes flying past us into the coop it's quickly followed by a pair that rushes past us to get inside then another group comes up from behind me. I turn around and see his pigeons returning from every direction, descending from the sky, flying up from nearby buildings, landing lightly on the roof before calmly walking to the coop or dive-bombing directly inside. They circle around Julius, twisting around the flag flirtatiously before landing on the edge of the roof, or flit so close to me they lift my hair up with their wings.
1: See any more coming in?
0: I scan the sky as Julius continues waving his flag. There! There's two more coming! I shoot my finger forward at two dots making a beeline for us from over the Hudson. I watch them get larger and larger until they land on the roof between us. Julius stops waving the flag and follows them into the coop. I peek through the door behind him and watch him count. He nods, turns to me, and holds his arms up in something between a shrug and a magician saying, ta-da! All here! has made my general mood change from feeling sorry for myself for having to exist in a world with other people in it, to feeling sorry for myself for existing in a life with no one else in it. Jeff had texted me during my time at home to see if I wanted to go out, and I had told him I was sick, which I guess is not technically untrue. Two days after seeing the birds, I tepidly reached out to see if he hadn't given up on me. When he responds within minutes to my stupid small talk question, I ask if he'd be free sometime to get a drink. He suggests tomorrow and follows up with a place and time. Frankly, his eagerness, his proactive participation in the conversation is a relief. Lately, it seems if you express interest in wanting to see a guy, it's considered unbearably needy. If they begrudgingly relent to meeting up with you this weekend, and you push on to want to know which day exactly, or if there's a particular bar they may want to meet at, or if you should just wander around Brooklyn and hope to run into them, it's all just seen as way too much. And instead of having to endure the torture of having to interact with someone they've already had a pleasant evening with, they decide, actually, to just never talk to you ever again. Jeff seems different. I should know by now that none of them are different, but for now I'm choosing to believe that Jeff is different. Jeff will make me feel like a person again. He will look at me as if he doesn't understand how I got this lucky to be able to sit across a table from me. He will let me speak and maybe even actually listen. He will give me a warm hug at the end of the night, and I will look up at him and consider kissing him for a moment, but then decide to wait, and he won't mind. He will tell me to text him when I get home safe, and he'll probably even care when I tell him I have. Jeff just seems like that kind of guy. Now that I know I'm seeing him the next day, I shower like I mean it. I shave everywhere. I put in leave-in conditioner. I do all four steps of my skincare routine instead of the two, okay, sometimes one, that I usually do. I use my good lotion. I paint my nails while I watch Sex and the City, really indulge in femininity for a night. It helps. I'm making myself worth spending time with. Tomorrow, I'll try on four different dresses and end up wearing the first one I tried on. I'll take time with my makeup. I'll spritz a little perfume onto my wrists like some old Hollywood dame, something floral and pleasant and simple enough for a man to like. Jeff will remember he has a date that night maybe an hour before he's supposed to leave, and he'll jump in the shower and find some clothes that are only a little wrinkled to wear. This is fine. It's a little pat by now to say I do these things for me, not for him, but it's true. The most I'll consider him is when I'm deciding whether to put my tits or ass more on display. I like trying to guess which one he likes best, but I'm almost always wrong. The next day, I make the assumption that Jeff is a tits man. I meet him at a pub in Prospect Heights. It's not too crowded, and we manage to snag ourselves a booth. We both get a beer. So,
2: how are you feeling?
0: Better, thank you.
2: I don't think it's that uncommon for grief to manifest in some kind of physical sickness.
0: I get a quick pang of guilt and give him a quick smile before I take a drink. He brings his hand up to his face.
2: Sorry, what a weird way to start out a date. Let's see. Something normal.
0: We don't have to be that normal. That type of stuff probably is your normal, with what you do and all.
2: Yeah, I guess if you put it that way.
0: How'd you get into that anyway? Family business?
2: Yep. Went to school to be a computer engineer. Found out that really wasn't for me about the same time that my dad got sick. I decided just to come back home, help out. After he passed, just seemed right to run the business with my uncle. Someday, I'll figure out what I want to do instead, but for now, it works.
0: I'm sorry to hear that, about your dad. The fucked up truth was, I wasn't sorry to hear that. My heart leaped with relief. I always felt so much more at ease with men who'd lost a parent. I figure we have the same foundation. I don't have to start from scratch with them when it comes to explaining myself. There are these unspoken things I'll just get that someone who's sailed through life will never understand. Perhaps there's a chance for Jeff and I after all.
2: Thank you. So what about you? What do you do?
0: I'm an artist. Well, I'm an illustrator. I do freelance illustration, but I'm trying to be more of an artist again. I'm going to get started on writing a graphic novel soon.
2: That's really cool. Is it going to be more like Neil Gaiman or more like Alison Bechtel?
0: I gave him a look of surprise. Look at this computer nerd turned guy who cleans up after the dead dropping literary names. I haven't really figured it out yet, but probably more along the lines of Becko. I'm not really so into the superhero thing.
2: Ha. Huh. Don't let anyone else hear you lump gaming into the superhero thing.
0: Well, jeez, I didn't peg you for such a dork.
2: Oh, yeah. I've been a dork since before it was cool.
0: Well, that just makes you sound like a hipster.
2: A dork hipster?
0: A hipster dork.
2: No, but really, I've honest to God been stuffed into a locker.
0: Oh, the other day?
2: (laughs) No, back in middle school. High school was a little better because then at least you could gather all the outcasts into their own little cliques.
0: Oh my God, you were in the AV club, weren't you?
2: Well, shoot, you certainly have me all figured out, don't you? Let me guess, you were one of the popular girls, weren't you?
0: What? Why?
2: I don't know, because you're nice? I figured you'd have lots of friends
0: nice? A of Did he well, just say nice? I am not nice. Nice view, is know, what men leave me for. Nice is the primary adjective given to every next girlfriend throughout my entire life. What could have, have possibly given him the impression that I was nice? Was it because the what first time he met me I was vulnerable? I was in a perceived state of grief, so naturally I was always weak? He's only here because he thinks he can save me, isn't he? He's only here because he thinks I need to be saved. He's projected this entire persona onto me, and he's never going to be interested in anything I reveal that negates that image. This happens to me all the time. They'll say something so shockingly inaccurate about me me that I suddenly realize I have no idea who they think I am. I can't even begin to count the number of dates I've been on where I'll be on the train home and realize he never asked a single question, not one question about me. Sometimes I'll even stop my interrogation of them and say, do you have any questions about me? And even then, inevitably, it'll be something about sex. Yeah, what are you into? That's one they always like. Anyway, what's the actual
2: answer then? Judging by your reaction, I'm assuming I wasn't right.
0: I could tell him that I spent most of high school reeling. And I mostly just remember it as a whirl of vomit and weed and driving slowly down back roads with squinting eyes, trying to steady the spins and cutting myself because I heard it was something you could do, and senior boys, and college boys, then getting closer and closer to pushing a flirtation with my biology teacher over the edge, until, finally, as he was gripping my shoulders in the supply room, something came over him, and he shook himself out of it and rushed out of the room, never to speak to me again, not even when I raised my hand in class. But instead, I shrugged and said, Yeah, actually, I guess you could say I was one of the popular girls. The rest of the night passes pleasantly enough. I can't help but enjoy Jeff's company. I am relieved at his repertoire of cocktail party stories about his job, the horror shows of hoarders' apartments, or the score of an abundance of riches of some fabulously wealthy person with no family to inherit them, or the crime scene odd job they'd pick up when death was slow because it saved us the agony of having to come up with original conversation. I knew when to gasp and laugh and recoil appropriately. We had an easy banter, and he asked me questions about art. He even hinted at a future date where I could take him to a museum, teach him a few things. I hadn't been exactly sure that I was attracted to him, But as the night went on and the empty glasses on our table accumulated, I found myself leaning closer and closer to him, seeking out his knee under the table with my own. I wanted to press myself against him and kiss his neck. I still wasn't sure I could imagine us fucking, but I wanted to kiss him. I did. But now that we're standing outside the bar and he's looking down at me with these big, hopeful eyes, that naive sparkle in them that, hey, Maybe this was my last, first date. I feel this tugging at me. We've been lingering under the awning, prolonging our goodbyes, grasping for more and more things to say to each other. I do think he has made a decent effort to actually get to know me, but I can still see it. I can still see that he thinks I'm good. He doesn't want the broken, fucked-up me. He doesn't want complicated. He doesn't want difficult. He wants nice. He wants simple. I had gotten it wrong when I'd felt hope about his dad dying. He doesn't give a shit about someone understanding him. He just wants to be happy. And no one's going to just be happy with someone like me. We've come to a pause in our conversation. This is it. We either kiss or we finally say goodbye. I look up at him take in his kind face one last time, and smile softly. Can I tell you something? I see the flicker of panic flash across his face. Yeah, sure. Okay. Well, earlier this summer, I found this notebook with a list of names in it. It had all these little clues in it. These little notes like neighborhoods, or jobs, or years, or countries... I started Googling them and some were dead, some were around the country, but most of them were here in New York and so easy to find and I don't know. I just got obsessed with them. I wanted to figure out who they were and what the list was. I've been tracking them down and meeting them. I've been lying to them in order to meet them and tricking them and just being so deceitful right to their faces, including you. Gail Cohen wasn't my great aunt. She was just some name on the list. I wasn't grieving. I was just freaked out that this woman I had been stalking was suddenly dead. But it was through her that I figured out they're all a family. These crazily connected, way-extended family members that, without knowing it, had been living this whole time here together side by side in the city. And they're all so sad and lonely and angry, but I've just been sitting on this information ever since. I even went to find someone else, this old man, this lonely, abandoned old man, and I didn't tell him. I didn't tell him he could have more family if he wanted, and I don't know why. I don't know why I'm doing this, because I, of all people, to withhold the chance to give someone a family, I just feel so fucking guilty, so fucking sick about it. I thought the list would give me some purpose, and now it has given me purpose, and I'm ignoring it because if I do, then it's over, and then what's left for me? I can feel the tears welling up, so I stop the rush of words pouring from my mouth before it's too late. I meet Jeff's gaze, who's been watching me. I can't scrutinize his expression. I can't differentiate between concern, pity, disgust, or fear. Maybe, maybe it could be sympathy. I hadn't expected it all to come out, but I was physically unable to stop it. Now that someone, anyone knew that I wasn't alone in it anymore, I feel the weight starting to lift from my shoulders. Even if someone hated me for it, at least it was out there for them to hate. Am I a monster? Jeff drops his head and rubs his chin. He looks back up at me.
2: No. You're not a monster.
0: Do you hate me? He steps forward, and to my surprise, he leans down and gives me a very gentle kiss on my forehead. I look up at him, one tear spilling, and he pulls me in for a hug. I rest my head on his chest, inhaling him. I don't want to feel safe in his arms. I don't want to need a man's arms to feel safe, but I do, for the first time in a very long time. I pull back because I know we won't ever see each other again. I know that can't possibly happen for us, and I don't want to allow myself to get caught up in the fantasy, but he won't release me. He leans down again and kisses me. It's slow and soft and when he walks us backwards so that he's pressing me against the wall, it somehow feels protective. I can imagine the weight of him on top of me, but not tonight. I wrap my arms around his neck and lose myself in him just for a moment. Then I stop. Jeff walks me to Grand Army Plaza, then heads over to the queue. He asks me to text him when I get home, and I do, and he thanks me for remembering. He texts me the next day too, just to see how I am. I have been forgiven by at least one person, but I know what I have to do. This has been chapter seven of This Used to Be the Place julius kramer budapest it was written read and produced by me celeste Kaufman. additional voice work was provided by jay Pastelach and clifton butt music is courtesy of eva schlegel next up is chapter eight hannah grandmother thanks for listening